Galatians chapter 5, verses 7 through 12 is our text today. Brother Matthew's going to try to get through all these verses in one sermon. So, Galatians 5, 7 through 12. The Apostle Paul writes, You were running well. Who prevented you from obeying the truth? This persuasion did not come from him who called you. A little yeast leavens the whole lump of dough. In the Lord, I have confidence in you that you will not accept any other view. But whoever it is who is troubling you will pay the penalty. Now, brothers, if I still preach circumcision, why am I still persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been abolished. I wish those who are disturbing you might also get themselves castrated. Yahweh bless His word to our hearts today. In my last two lessons, I went through Galatians chapter 5, verses 1 through 6, and I showed what it means to be free in the Messiah, and also showed that what matters the most is faith working through love. That's Galatians 5, verse 6. No one will ever be justified by an outward action or an outward work. Justification is something that takes place inwardly, And then it works its way out. Faith is placed into a person's mind and heart. And then that faith, which is a gift from Yahweh, works through love. Something that I've learned as I've studied through this epistle, and I think that it will help you to remember this in your walk, is just as a person can have faith or mental assent, belief in the mind without works, as James teaches, A person can have works without faith, as Paul teaches. Neither is sufficient. What we want is the gift of Yahweh, Galatians 5, 6, and that gift is faith working through love. So we come today to verses 7 through 12, and here Paul just continues to express his disdain and his reproach of the message of the influencers that were coming into Galatia, disturbing the brothers. We'll begin in verse 7. Verse 7, Paul writes this. He says, you were running well. Who prevented you from obeying the truth? The image here is of a runner in a race and one person is doing good in the race. He's keeping up. His stamina is good. He's making good time. He's making good progress. And then someone cuts in front of him and trips that runner up on purpose. And then that runner gets off course. The Galatians had been doing so well in the acceptance of the gospel message about the Messiah. But the influencers came in and began to teach them another gospel, a false gospel. Trip them up in the race or trip them up in their walk. Verse 8 says, This persuasion did not come from Him who called you. Him who called you is Yahweh. The way in which the Galatians were being persuaded was not due to Yahweh working in their hearts, but rather due to them being influenced by the false teachers. And then we have verse 9. Verse 9, Paul says, A little yeast leavens the whole lump of dough. The apostle uses an analogy here about how that yeast spreads through dough in the bread making process. When you mix yeast or a starter dough from a previous loaf of bread, when you mix that yeast with flour and water and salt, and you can put other things in it, but when you mix it with those necessary components, you eventually get a raised loaf of bread. But it only takes a little bit of yeast, not a lot. And just as the yeast 
can leaven a lump of dough, false doctrine can come in and influence an entire group of people or an entire congregation like in the case of Galatia. This is why it's important, brothers and sisters, that you don't just listen to anyone teach the Bible. Some people think that we need to be open-minded and let anyone and everyone speak into our life. Tell us what the Bible says or teach us about a particular verse. and That can be a dangerous thing. Because there are a lot of people out there in the world that have all sorts of strange ideas about what the Bible verses mean. And many of these people don't even belong to a congregation. And many of these people don't have a pastor or an elder over them. Now, there is also a criteria listed in Scripture for a ruling elder. You can find these criteria in the books of Titus chapter 1 and 1 Timothy chapter 3. It lists qualifications for a man that is to be a ruling elder in a congregation. You can also find some qualifications listed in Exodus chapter 18 and Deuteronomy chapter 1. And the point in the criteria and the qualifications is this. This is the point. Is that before you trust a man and his message, you should always examine his life. Any teaching elder or ruling elder is not going to be a perfect man. You're not going to find the Messiah in an elder. But his life will be exemplary. He will have the characteristics that are listed in Scripture. And this is why he'll have them. Because Yahweh has chosen him for the task. So I just want to encourage you, just be careful. Some people love to stir up discord amongst brothers. I've had a few come through here. I've had to run a few off. And that's okay. The pastor is to have two voices. One to encourage the sheep and another voice to drive off the wolves. So that is okay. Um, that is a pastor's job. Throw out the yeast, drive away the wolves. And it's because it's because it only takes a little bit of yeast to make a leavened loaf. So just be careful. Be careful who you let speak into your life. You can be running good, you can be in the race, and then somebody can come along and cut in front of you and trip you up, and they're really not interested in investing their life in you. They're just interested in puffing up their self or what have you, other man-made things. Then we see this in verse 10. In verse 10 it says, In the Lord I have confidence in you that you will not accept any other view, but whoever it is who is troubling you will pay the penalty. Now, I love how the Apostle Paul is an encourager. He does rebuke because that is what an apostle is for, to rebuke, but he's also there to encourage. He has a good balance. It's okay to give out rebukes and constructive criticisms. That is okay, but don't let that be all that you give out to people. If you are not going to spend time speaking encouragement into somebody's life and healing into somebody's life, then you don't get to speak that rebuke into somebody's life. But if you spent the time nurturing somebody and caring for somebody and encouraging somebody and building them up, then there'll come a time when maybe they need a rebuke or they need a chastisement and they'll receive it from you because you've not just been a rebuker, but you've also been an encourager to them. So after Paul speaks of someone cutting the Galatians off in their race in verse 7 and the possibility of the Messiah being of no benefit to them in verse 2, 
He tells them that in spite of this, this is what the encouraging part is. He said, in spite of this, I have confidence in you in the Lord. In other words, Paul was saying, he who began a good work in you will finish it until the day of completion. Sometimes false doctrine or just life's struggles come along and it begins or they begin to make us doubt or they trip us up so we stop running the race, the spiritual race. Or we get set on another path for a while or we stop feeling spiritual or feeling encouraged. But if Yahweh is on our side, if Yahweh has begun a good work in you, He will pick you up, He will brush you off, He'll mend your wounds, He'll bandage your sores, and He'll say, it's okay, my child, I've got you. Let me put you back in the race. He who began a good work in you will finish it to the day of completion. I have seen people go through rough patches in their life, and it's hard to watch. But I've seen some of these same people come out on the other side stronger than they have ever been in the Spirit. Because the trying of our faith works endurance. When we are put to the test, it builds our spiritual muscles and it makes us stronger for the next struggle that we face. So Paul has confidence that the Lord will guard and protect his sheep so that they don't stray permanently. I love that. In the Lord, I have confidence in you that you will not accept any other view. But he says, but whoever it is that's troubling you, they will pay the penalty. That's because Paul is very upset with the false teachers here. He is so upset that I think he gives his harshest rebuke in all of his letters here in these verses. And we'll get to that here in just a moment. Verse 11. Now brothers, if I still preach circumcision, why am I still persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been abolished. Now it sounds here like Paul is being accused of something and he's defending himself. The accusation is is that Paul still preached circumcision. This does not mean the preaching of circumcision as an act of loving obedience to the covenant sign of Abraham. But this is talking about preaching circumcision as the means to which a Gentile was forgiven of his sin and brought into the faith. Preaching circumcision here is something that Paul used to do, evidenced by the word still. He said, brothers, if I still preach circumcision, speaking of to the nations that convert, that they have to be circumcised in order to be forgiven or saved. There was a time when he did preach that according to this verse, but he no longer did at this time. Instead, he welcomed the uncircumcised Gentile male converts and he welcomed them on the basis of their faith in the Messiah. He didn't preach that they needed to undergo proselyte conversion to Judaism for their salvation. They were children of Abraham and they were ultimately children of Yahweh and the way that they were children was by faith in the seed of Abraham, the Messiah. But why would Paul be accused of still preaching circumcision? Why would he have to defend himself here and say, now brothers, if I still preach it, Such and such. Well, see, Paul never stopped teaching the Israelites that they needed to circumcise their sons. You'll find this in Acts chapter 21. There was a rumor going around about Paul that he had stopped teaching the Israelites to circumcise their sons, but that rumor was false. He proved it wrong in Acts 21. He still taught the Israelite believers in the Messiah, those people in Israel who joined to the faith of the Messiah, the promised Messiah in the Old Testament that had came now, He still encouraged them 
and taught them to continue to circumcise their sons as they'd done for thousands of years previous. There were also times that Paul would take a believing adult male Gentile and circumcise or have him circumcised. Turn back with me to Acts chapter 16 if you're following in your Bible. Let's look at Acts 16 verses 1 through 5 to show this. It says, Then he went on to Derbe and Lystra, where there was a disciple named Timothy, the son of a believing Jewish woman, but his father was a Greek. The brothers at Lystra and Iconium spoke highly of him, and Paul wanted Timothy to go with him, so he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, since they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they traveled through the towns, they delivered the decisions reached by the apostles and elders at Jerusalem for them to observe. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and were increased in number daily. So, Timothy had an Israelite mother. We read in other epistles that her name was Eunice. And she also, she wasn't just a Hebrew, she was a believing Israelite mother. She believed in the Messiah. But his father did not grow up in the faith of Yahweh. His father didn't grow up keeping the law, keeping the Torah. That's what the word Greek means. It's synonymous with the word Gentile. Gentile and Greek, often in the New Testament and often in the, the Greek Old Testament, means an outsider. Somebody that didn't get the opportunity to grow up and learn the laws of Yahweh. And then they, they grow up and maybe convert to the faith later on in life. Uh, a Greek or a Gentile, that's, that's what that means. So Timothy, because he had a Greek father and not an Israelite father, he wasn't circumcised at eight days old. His father probably wasn't either, else he would have had his son circumcised. Yet Timothy became a disciple of the Messiah, as verse 1 tells us, at 16.1. And there were brothers in the cities where Paul and Barnabas planted churches that spoke highly of Timothy. We read that as well. Now Paul wanted Timothy to go with him on missionary journeys, but these were missionary journeys to Hebrew people. Israelite people that didn't yet believe in the Messiah. And so, in order to head off any contention from the beginning, from the get-go, Paul took Timothy, who wasn't circumcised, a grown man, and he had him circumcised. Paul had Timothy circumcised to head off any problems in him witnessing to the Jews that he was going to be on the mission field for. Now, what's interesting is that this is written in Acts 16, where Paul took Timothy and had him circumcised, This is written right after what's called the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15. If you've never read Acts 15, you need to read Acts 15. This is a council of the apostles and elders, and they come together to discuss a discrepancy or a disagreement in the community. And that disagreement was that there were some Jewish people that believed that a Gentile could not have salvation unless he was first circumcised, which means unless he first converted over to Judaism, the faith of the people of Judah. And so the key here is that Paul did not have Timothy circumcised because he believed that Timothy was lost until he got circumcised. Paul did it to help their missions to the unbelieving Judahites. And so these are some of the reasons. Acts 21 and Paul's teaching to the Israelite believers and then Acts 16, what Paul did with Timothy. These are probably some of the reasons why Paul was still being accused of preaching circumcision because in one sense of the word, he still did preach circumcision. But he didn't preach it in the sense of demanding or forcing Gentile converts to undergo proselyte conversion to be forgiven of their sins. They were already forgiven of their sins. How? By faith 
in the promised Messiah. Same way Abraham was justified back in the book of Genesis. So Paul's point in Galatians 5.11 is that if he still demanded the Gentiles be circumcised, to be forgiven or to be saved, why then is he being persecuted for the cross of the Messiah? See, Paul believed that what took place upon the cross is sufficient to save a heathen from his or her sins. They do not have to convert to be a proselyte Jew. They're forgiven based upon the life, death, and resurrection of Yeshua, the Messiah. What does Paul mean here in Galatians by the offense of the cross? Something about the cross was offensive. That word offense, oftentimes in the New Testament, comes from a Greek word. The Greek word is scandalon, and it refers to like, you've seen them old primitive traps where they've got a stick that holds up a rock to try to catch a small animal. And that stick was called a scandalon. Or sometimes if there was just a rock that would make somebody trip, or a hole that would make somebody trip in the road, it was called a scandalon, a stumbling block, an occasion for stumbling often translated as offense in the New Testament. I think that the immediate context of why the cross was offensive or a stumbling block was this. It was offensive to Israelites that people from heathen nations could be forgiven and join the community based on something outside of them. That was offensive. We've been obeying the Torah for all these years. We've served Yahweh for many, many thousands of years. And you're going to tell me that some heathen can repent of his sins, place his faith in the Messiah, and he's forgiven like that based upon the work of the Messiah simply with by just having faith and trust. That was offensive to the Jewish people, to the Israelite people. That was a stumbling block that many Jews could not get past. And Paul was being persecuted for believing and teaching this. Flogged, beat, stoned, mocked, chased. He was persecuted for this. So the offense of the cross had not stopped in Paul's life. That's what Paul's making a point there. I'm still being persecuted. Now, the cross was also offensive and a stumbling block to Judahites because Yeshua died on the cross as a criminal. Now, He wasn't a criminal. He had not committed a crime. He was wrongly accused of crimes and He was hung naked on a torture stake. That's what a cross was. The Romans used it to torture criminals. The people that hung beside, the two men that hung beside Yeshua on other crosses were actually criminals. They were dagger men. They wanted to raise up a resistance against the Roman government. They were there justly. Yeshua wasn't, but yet He looked like He was a criminal there hanging on the cross. And that was offensive to many Jewish people because how could that be the act that would take away the sin of the world? How could that be the Lamb of Yahweh that takes away the sin? Galatians 3.13, just a few verses back from what we're studying today, says this, Paul writes, The Messiah has redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Don't ever leave those two words off. He didn't just become a curse. He became a curse for us. Always quote it with those two words. Because it is written, and Paul quotes Deuteronomy 27, cursed or Deuteronomy, I think maybe verse uh, chapter 21 rather. Cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. So the Messiah did become a curse, but He did so on our behalf. Not because He was guilty Himself, but it was hard to get past this for many 
Israelite people, it was offensive to them because their law said, you're cursed if you hang upon a tree like that. So it was offensive to them that the man who claimed to be their Messiah would die the death of a criminal. This was weak and it was foolish in their eyes. A crucified Messiah, the real Messiah, he would never let that happen. The real Messiah would have been the boss right from the start. He would have came in Rome and just taken over everything. He would have done all that for us. But not so with the workings of Yahweh, brothers and sisters. Yahweh often does things backward from the way that us humans think that they should go. They don't make sense to our humanity. They don't make sense to our mind. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I'd like to read verses 18 through 25. 1 Corinthians beginning in chapter 1 at verse 18, it says, For to those who are perishing, the message of the cross is foolishness. But to us who are being saved, it is Yahweh's power. See, sometimes we share the Word with people and we try to make it palatable to their ears. Now, it's okay to speak the truth in love and kindness and gentleness. The Scriptures are all about that. The servant of Yahweh must not strive, but be gentle, right? So it's okay to speak the truth in love. That's how it's supposed to be spoken. But it is not our job to make the truth, especially the truth of the Gospel, more palatable or acceptable to the human mind. A dying Messiah, one who became a curse, that doesn't make sense to people, especially Israelite people who grew up in the faith of Torah. It doesn't make sense really to any of us because we seek, for the most part, fame and power and prestige and to be the best. That's what we seek. We seek to rule and to domineer over other people. But our Messiah didn't seek that. He made Himself of no reputation. He took upon Himself the form of a servant. Came just like a pauper. Verse 19, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise... And I will set aside the understanding of the experts. Where is the philosopher? Where is the scholar? Where is the debater of this age? Has not Yahweh made the world's wisdom foolish? For since in Yahweh's wisdom, the world did not know Yahweh through wisdom. Yahweh was pleased to save those who believe, have faith, through the foolishness of the message preached. The foolishness of the message here is the crucified Messiah. That's foolish to both Jews and Greeks. But it's only foolish in the natural, not in the spiritual. Verse 22, it says, For the Jews ask for signs, and the Greeks seek for wisdom. But we preach the Messiah crucified, tortured, a stumbling block to the Jews, and foolishness to the Gentiles. Salvation, our salvation comes through a suffering Messiah. One who was wounded and bruised and beaten with stripes for our transgressions of the law. That's why He was bruised. That's why He was beaten for our sins, which sin is transgression of the law. That's why He was on the cross. He became a curse for us. He took upon the curse of the law. Deuteronomy 27. He took upon those curses for us. Verse 24. Remember verse 23 says, But we preach Messiah crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews, foolishness to the Gentiles. Verse 24 it says, Yet to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, the Messiah is Yahweh's power and Yahweh's wisdom. Because Yahweh's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom. <laughs> and Yahweh's weakness 
is stronger than human strength. It sounds like a foolish message. You want to join our faith? We believe in a crucified Messiah. Our Messiah didn't come seeking prestige. He came and He emptied Himself. And He acted like a slave. On the night before He was betrayed, He washed the feet of the man that He knew would betray Him. He could have said, I'm not worried about your feet. You're going to betray me anyhow with a kiss. No, He bent down. The Savior of the world bent down and washed Judas' dirty feet. Yahweh's weakness is stronger than human wisdom. We don't operate like that. We think that we have to sound the most intelligent and appear the strongest. We think we cannot make an impact on the world unless we have this theological degree or or that high degree or this and that. And unless we're strong-willed and we can't let anybody run over us because we've got to make an impact. But that wasn't our Messiah. Not at all. He was humble. He was a quiet man. He appeared weak to many. But when he was reviled, He did not revile in return. When He suffered, He did not threaten back. The Scripture says He just committed Himself to the One who judges justly. And the Bible says it brought favor. Brought favor upon Him from the Almighty. So Paul says in Galatians 5 verse 11, if I still preach circumcision, talking about to the Gentiles for salvation, why am I then being persecuted? In that case, the offense, the scandalon, the stumbling block of the cross has been abolished. The offense of the cross was not abolished in Paul's preaching. He preached the Messiah and Him crucified. And it remained a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. The Gentiles thought they were wise. The cross was foolish to them. The Jews thought, no, that's, there's no way. That's a, that's a stumbling block. We, we can't believe in that kind of a Messiah. But to those who were being saved, both Israel and heathen, those who were repenting of their sins and placing faith in the Messiah, the message of the cross, the crucified Messiah, it was powerful and it was wise. And it's because Yahweh's weakness is stronger than any human on the earth. And Yahweh's foolishness is wiser than any wisdom of man. Can I cover one more verse? Galatians 5 verse 12. We'll end with this. Paul says, I wish those who are disturbing you, troubling you, upsetting you, might also get themselves castrated. You say, do what, Brother Matthew? That makes you do a double take. Did Paul really say that? Well, yes, he did. This is an excellent translation from the Greek text of Galatians. And Paul is making a play here on the false circumcision. The false circumcision message preached by the influencers He is saying that they're so worried about a Gentile man having his member snipped that he wishes they would just go the whole way and lop it off completely. Now, I won't be as open with my words as I could be because we have mixed company here, but I dare you to bore me with the Bible, right? People say the Bible's boring. They don't know stuff like this is in the Bible. This is probably the strongest and harshest rebuke that Paul ever gave to false teachers. I would that you would be cut off, the King James says. The Greek word means emasculated, mutilated, castrated. So, there's a couple of things to mention here. For one, there was a group in Asia Minor and possibly right there in the city of Galatia and it was called the Cult of Sabele. And Sabele was said to be the offspring of Father Zeus and Mother Earth. 
And Sabele was born what's called a hermaphrodite, but then castrated shortly after birth. And long story short, in the worship or the cult of Sabele there in Asia Minor, people would work, men would work themselves up in a frenzy, and then they would castrate themselves in her honor. And it's likely that the Gentile converts in Galatia knew about this. And so when Paul said, I wish that the false teachers, those that are troubling you, would just castrate themselves, Paul was probably saying, look, they're no better off than the pagans at the cult of Sabele. Now, we don't get that from the immediate text of Galatians, but we have to remember, this is important when you read the Bible and you learn to interpret the Bible. You don't just want to study the biblical text. You want to study the culture, the surrounding culture of that time period. Because Paul writes this, and everybody that gets Paul's letter immediately would probably know about the cult of Sabalate. Probably it's the first time you've ever heard of it. It's the first time I've ever heard of it in reading some commentaries. So we have to study the culture of the area of Galatia as well. Now, what I think is even more likely here is that Paul is playing off of Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 1. Now, Brother TJ planted this seed in my mind a few years back, and then Yahweh gave the increase here recently in my, my studies uh, on this text in Galatians 5. So, let me tell you a little story. Years ago, oh, probably about five, seven years ago, I called into a radio program where there was this Bible teacher, very well known, and he was discussing the law and how the law is not relevant to the Christian. We don't really need to worry about the Old Testament law, so it's not relevant. And I called in because... Back then, I was a lot more zealous than I am now. I still get zealous sometimes, <laughs> but I had a lot more zeal back then, and so I would call in every chance that I'd get to try to correct who I believed was teaching falsely. And I got just a few seconds, because it's very difficult when they control the microphone for you to say anything. But I got a few seconds in. The conversation was eight minutes. I probably spoke about two of the eight minutes. I have it recorded if anybody wants to listen to it. But I called in and expressed my view that the laws in the Old Testament are still relevant for the Christian, for the believer, and that it does matter to God if we obey or disobey His commandments. And so I just got a few seconds into explaining, and this Bible teacher, he said, so, so, whoa, 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 so you really think the law is applicable? Okay, let me just randomly open up. You heard the Bible pages flip, and he acted like he just closed his eyes and randomly opened up to Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 1. Close his eyes, put his finger down on it, and read the verse. <laughs> and I would bet the farm that it was strategic and it wasn't random as he tried to make people think. Why? Because Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 1 sounds offensive to the unlearned ear. It sounds offensive to the ears of most Christian people. What does Deuteronomy 23, verse 1 say? I'll read it from the King James Version because it's a little tamer in the King James Version. But it says, He that is wounded in the stones or hath his privy member cut off shall not enter into the congregation of the Lord or of Yahweh. That's King James. Now, I'm also going to go out on a limb here and not just say that this doctor of the Bible did not randomly choose this verse, but I'm going to say that we might be the only congregation who ever deals with something like this from the pulpit. Maybe. Now that was King James. The Holman Christian Standard Bible, you can read it, I'm not going to read it, but the Holman Christian Standard Bible is more revealing, but you get the idea from the KJV. It's talking about castration, or at least a man being wounded in that area by someone else for whatever reason. 
Now, what is significant here? Why do you bring this up? Well, what's significant here is that the Greek word that Paul used in Galatians 5 verse 12, apokopto, which means to cut off. It's used in the New Testament for uh, when Peter cut off the right ear of, of Malchus. It's used where Yeshua says, if your right hand offends you, cut it off. Or in Mark, he says, if your right foot offends you, cut it off. He's talking about amputation. It's used in the New Testament about cutting off the ropes on a sailing boat. It's always used in cutting off something. And that word that Paul used is the same word used in Deuteronomy 23, verse 1. In the Greek Old Testament, what's called the Septuagint, which the Torah portion of the Greek Old Testament came about starting about 250 years before the time of the Messiah, roughly. So, the radio show host that I talked about earlier, he asked me, he said, so do you believe in and enforce this law in your congregation? Deuteronomy 23 verse 1. And I can imagine everybody that's listening, they probably thought, oh, what's this guy? Surely he don't believe in Deuteronomy 23 verse 1. Why is he even back there? I heard one pastor one time when a guy called in and said he was reading Deuteronomy, the pastor said, First of all, what are you even doing back there in the book of Deuteronomy? So you're supposed to be in the New Testament. People don't read the Old Testament anymore, but that's the only Bible that Yeshua had and the apostles had. That's, that's the Bible that they had. They didn't have a New Testament. They were acting out or living out the New Testament. So I told this doctor, this teacher, that we would have to cover what the word congregation meant. But then I got quickly interrupted and he moved to his next shotgun point And he started carpet bombing me. With point after point after point, not letting me answer his points. So it's debated what congregation of the Lord here means. What has to enter this discussion is a passage where Yahweh speaks through the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 56. Now, Isaiah 56, the first part of that chapter, Yahweh talks to the strangers and to the eunuchs. The word eunuch came about later to be referred to a man who was either born impotent or had been castrated by a higher official. Or sometimes it referred to a person who just wanted to be celibate and live their life strictly for the Lord. Like live a monastic life, like a monk or something like that. But the eunuch in Isaiah 56, he's discouraged. He's sad. And he said, please don't let Yahweh cut me off from His people because I'm cut off. He said, I'm a dry tree. I'm not going to have any children. My name's not going to be able to continue. And Yahweh tells the eunuch there, the man who's wounded in the stones, as Deuteronomy 23.1 says. He says, look, be encouraged. Because if you keep my Sabbaths and you do the things that please me and you take hold of my covenant, he said, I'm going to give you a name in my house and within my walls that will be a better name than if you were to have sons and daughters as offspring. He said, it will be an everlasting name in my tabernacle or my temple. So the eunuch there is discouraged and Yahweh builds him up and he says, don't worry Do what pleases me, and you'll be all right. You won't be cut off from the people. So the reason I bring up Isaiah 56 is it lets us know that the congregation of Yahweh in Deuteronomy 23 verse 1, it's not a church service, and it's not even the people of Israel as a whole, because the eunuch's not cut off from the people of Israel. He's allowed his sacrifices and offerings will be accepted on Yahweh's altar, the text says. So that's not what the eunuch is being excluded from in 23 verse 1. What is more likely the case with this law in Deuteronomy 23 is that the eunuch here is being excluded from holding a position of leadership or an authoritative position in the congregation of the elders of Israel. 
Sometimes the word congregation of the Lord or congregation of Yahweh in the Torah doesn't refer to the whole congregation, but the congregation of judges or ruling authority. You can find it in Leviticus 4, Numbers 35, where there's a court case and the person that is coming to court, he's brought in front of the congregation. And that's talking about the elders, the rulers. And they make a ruling over that particular court case. So this physical blemish and whatever negatives may come with that excludes the eunuch from leadership. Not from worship of Yahweh, not from service to Yahweh, but he can't rule as an elder in the congregation of the Lord. Why is this significant? Well, what Paul might be saying in Galatians 5 verse 12, and this is what I think Paul is saying, when he says, I would that those who are disturbing you might be castrated. I think Paul is saying, I wish you didn't have a teaching position so you wouldn't be able to teach the Galatians false doctrine in the first place. If they were cut off, if they were castrated, apocopto, they wouldn't be allowed to teach or be ruling elders or judges in Israel. So I think what Paul was doing was calling for their leadership position to be revoked. He wanted them to be removed from the congregation of the Lord, speaking of the ruling elders in Israel, per the law of Deuteronomy 23, verse 1. Now, if somebody would like more on this, I recently posted a teaching video about this. It goes into a lot more detail. And also, I've got an article that I wrote on this while I was studying for the sermon. And I can get that to you. Just let me know after the service. As I close, Yahweh's Word always has something to teach us, doesn't it? It never ceases to amaze me that when I get into this Bible and I study it, what I find, there are so many things that I've learned in the last year. And I know there's so many things that I don't know now that, that Yahweh's going to teach me right. as I continue to study the Bible, listen to other elders that study as well, and listen to my children, my wife, listen to all of you. We learn together, we grow together in the faith. So next week we're going to begin a new section in Galatians. We're going to begin Galatians 5, 13-25, which speaks of the, the battle between the Spirit of Yahweh, the cosmic battle between the Spirit of Yahweh and the flesh of man, the flesh of humanity. So it's going to kind of shift gears a little bit here towards the end of Galatians. It's been a lot of the same stuff um, in chapter 4 and 5, but we're going to shift gears and talk about the, the, that battle, the works of the flesh, and the fruit of the Spirit. So it will probably take me a few weeks to get through that, but I think it will be good and be encouraging to everybody. So I love everybody. I appreciate everybody. May Yahweh richly bless you.